0: hello everybody welcome back to the show thank you for being here with me as always wherever here is i'm in madrid in a bed (laughs) i was just thinking recently like over the past six months how many places i've recorded podcasts from or taught my lunar circle from and it's pretty wild um I, as a, as an infant used to have like a severe phobia of transitions, I was a really high maintenance child, um, in many ways. But one thing that really fucked with me, like through being a child, not just an infant, um, was that any time I had to change like from one location to the other I freaked out so like going from home to school I was freaked out going from school to home I was freaked out like I just hated the transitions and I was thinking while driving the other day to an airport like oh I feel like I still sometimes feel these sort of faint memories of like I wish I could just snap my fingers and be in the other place like I don't want to have to pack up and get dressed and take a shower. <laughs> like I don't know what that is, um, but I was thinking how much I've been traveling the past six months and uh, that it's interesting. It's interesting to watch myself be able to be creative and productive in a way that I really, I think, had a limiting belief about before that I like wasn't going to be possible. And then in order to focus and in order to write and in order to record podcasts, that I needed to be stable and secure and That definitely helps in certain ways, but um, I don't know. It's been interesting to reflect on, especially the past six months of my life and realize like, actually you can get shit done in other places. It might be a little bit more difficult and you might have more stuff going on for sure. But always interesting to reinvent the narrative and the story. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that. I think a lot about stories and narratives a lot, of course, if you've been listening for a while. You know I kind of talk about that ad nauseum if you've taken my lunar circle with me um, or really listened to probably any podcast episode that I've put out that's astrology related. You've probably heard that I'm really into mythology and not just, you know, the mythological stories that exist already, but the way that we ourselves are a living, breathing mythological story. Um, I think it's incredibly empowering and interesting to see ourselves as like a walking, breathing narrative for so many reasons. And I think one of the main reasons is because we, ha- once we have that recognition, we have the capacity to write and tell our story intentionally in a way that we may not have been able to before, right? So if we're just sort of living unintentionally, blindly, Um, without a ton of agency, like we're still telling a story, right? I'm telling the story about how I'm like, I don't like transitions or how it's difficult for me to be creative when I'm moving around a lot. But once I realize I'm telling that story, you're like, is that a story I really want to tell? Is that story true? Maybe there's a different way to tell that story, you know? Um, So yeah, it's always interesting to me to become aware of the stories I'm telling and see if I can either just rewrite them entirely, like that isn't a story I want to relate to, or change it ever so slightly um, to have it be something that's much more authentic and aligned. Um, The guest that I have on today is Lindsay Lockett. Some of you may know her already. She was on the show before episode 86. She's a really interesting person, and I relate to her quite a bit, and I really appreciate her, the way she moves through the world, speaking of stories. I think she's someone who is very willing and, um, not just willing, desiring of reinvention Um, and desiring of change within herself and being okay with being like, you know what? Last month, I thought this, I believed this, I identified as this. And guess what? This month, I don't. And maybe next month, I'll go back to that other thing or do something totally new. And I think that's a really admirable and courageous quality. I think, you know, understandably, we're all sort of like, grasping for who we are and where we should belong and who, what group we should belong to and how do we identify and this and that. Um, And so it takes a lot of, I think, awareness and courage and groundedness and nervous system work to sort of opt out of that stagnancy. Um, Which isn't to say that we need to opt out of like understanding who we are, right? I'm not saying don't do the work to figure out who you are and what you like, but still simultaneous and parallel to that, we also need to recognize that that's just how we feel right now. Next week, next month, or next year, we may feel differently. And that's really important. Otherwise, you know, we get stuck in patterns and in relationships and in careers and in just overall stories that don't really serve us anymore. So we always need to be open to you know, I think being wrong, and I think that's what makes it courageous is like to admit that we were wrong or at the very least admit that something that used to feel right doesn't feel right anymore. it's It's a bit of a humbling process, you know. I think that kept me in so many toxic relationships because I was like, but fuck, I told everyone like this is who I was gonna marry and live the rest of my life with, and I'm realizing I'm not right about that, but now I'm really embarrassed to say something differently um and like all things in life you know crawling out of a pattern just takes practice and the more we do it the more we realize it's totally worth it even if it means being humiliated for a moment uh admitting that we were wrong or saying we're sorry man that shit's hard but so so necessary um So yes, I appreciate Lindsay for that. I'm excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Um, Like I said, Lindsay's been on the podcast before, but also this particular conversation is actually part two of a two-part conversation that we started on her podcast, the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast. So if you have not listened to that, that was her interviewing me on episode 79. So you can go back and listen to that. And then the second part is me interviewing her on my show. And we've been planning to have this conversation for a long time, like since last October, maybe. Um, We both have, I don't know, it's hard to describe. Like, I feel like we both have very different in terms of like the actual events that have occurred for us over the course of our life. Um, those have been very different, but the themes that we've grappled with are quite similar. Uh, and so even though she was raised in evangelical Christianity and I was raised in like Reform Judaism, we both sort of navigated the realms of belief and meaning and spirituality, which is what this two-part series is about, in sort of similar ways thematically. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of, you know, reach across the aisle in that way to people that on the surface might seem really different from you, but actually are extremely similar. Um, and ask the same questions and navigate the same uh, belief structures and ways of interacting with the world. And I, I want to, along all of these lines, just give some much needed time and recognition to, I know I talk about these things quite casually as far as reinventing ourselves and Admitting we were wrong about something, retelling the narrative, you know, adjusting our identity, depending on what we've learned and and what we've evolved into. And I don't want to over casualize. That's not a word. Um, I don't want to make that process sound like easier than it actually is, because at times it's earth shattering. Uh, to say the very least. And something that I know Lindsay and I shared was going through a really, 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 really difficult dark night of the soul where I was in my late twenties, she was in her early thirties, but basically opted out of like every single belief structure and worldview that we've been fed. We'd been fed over the course of our lives in order to reinvent ourselves. But of course, When you decide to opt out of all of those structures and systems, you don't really know what you're opting into yet. So there's just this blank slate, right? I think I've probably mentioned this before, um, or you heard him say it directly on the podcast, my friend Kevin Russell, who's been on twice, uh, who actually interestingly also was raised in fundamentalist religion as a Mormon. And he decided to opt out of his entire life in order to reinvent himself and he's a tech guy, and so he calls that phase that sort of dark night of the soul phase that you're in an open source state, right? You've like gotten rid of the previous programming, but you haven't really installed the the new programming, and so you just sort of like unzip your skin, open it up. All your organs are out on the table, and you're you feel incredibly vulnerable and freaked out, and rightfully so because you don't really know who you are or what you believe in. Um, Chris Ryan always talks about uh, describes this process as like leaving an island um that you might have people you love on or things that feel familiar to you and foods that you know how to you know gather or hunt but you know that there's there might be more out there but you have to leave that island before really knowing if you're going to find the island you're looking for or any island at all right like we this thing that we think we, we, or this thing that we want to do sometimes where we want it to feel safe before we jump or like want to feel certain before we move or want to know where we're headed before leaving the previous place. It just, it'll never, ever, ever come. I think that's like indicative of the the hero's journey itself, right? Like part of the journey is in being courageous and brave enough to say, fuck it. Like I have no idea if this is going to work or not, but I know what's happening right now is not working. Um, and that process is so important to me and, and gave me so much in my life. And I think in many ways is why I feel so strongly about, why I felt so strongly about creating this podcast, but also creating the community around it because I recognized how fucking terrifying it is and how it's not at all a casual, easy process. And that at the very least, we should have other people around us who have done it before to tell us that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I feel like my dad was that person for me. Like, he was like, I know you don't see it at all right now but there is a light, like you are going to make it somewhere. I can't tell you where you're going, but I promise you you're going somewhere. And he himself had gone through a process like this as well after getting divorced from my mom, realizing that he was truly a gay man and could not live in shame or lies anymore. And he too had to leave one island before knowing what the other island was, or if there even was one. Um, And sometimes this you know, when it rains, it pours in this respect. I think when we decide, okay, we're going to leave this one relationship because it's no longer serving me. I think it's a domino. It often creates a domino effect. Once we opt out of a certain pattern, whether it's like, or not even just pattern, right? Once we opt out of something, a relationship, a job, a community, a way of approaching the world, a way of telling a story, Once we make one of those decisions and Lindsay and I talk about this in our conversation, it often provokes a bunch more and that can feel excruciating, right? Because you're like, okay, awesome. I'm leaving this relationship that's no longer working for me, but at least I have all of my friends and my community and um, all these other things that I can turn to for comfort. But then we sort of look to those friends or those people or those structures and we realize maybe that they too are an expression of that same narrative or, or pattern that we're trying to opt out of, right? If we have a severely codependent relationship with a romantic partner, let's say, it's highly likely that you probably are engaging in those same sorts of relationship patterns with other people, whether that's family members or friendships or, or work relationships, And so it's like this house of fucking mirrors so often where you make one decision and it's like you can't unsee what you see and then you see it crop up over and over and over and over again and just makes you feel more and more and more alone and more and more helpless and more and more freaked out because there really isn't any fucking ground to stand on. I'm sort of in one of these processes right now. Um, It's certainly not been as dark or as scary as my sort of initial dark night of the soul in my late 20s that this podcast was birthed out of. But it's definitely one of those things where I came to terms with some patterns that I've enacted and some ways that I've been moving through the world that I recognized in one area and then now keep seeing so quickly in other areas and in other circumstances. And it's pretty fucked, you know, like, I mean, ultimately I'm grateful and learning and yay. And like, I'll be a better person afterwards. But in the interim period, it's pretty terrifying and embarrassing at times and crushing at times. And I think we're very attracted to... In an almost erotic way, a la existential kink, which I know some of you read with me in our book club a while back. But when, you know, these toxic patterns that we enact, we think like, well, this is hurting us and this has never turned out before. So why do I keep doing it, you know? And I think we try to convince ourselves out of the fact that we're doing it because we assume that we have our best interests at heart. Um, but our subconscious does not always have our self-interest at heart. Our subconscious has what's familiar at heart. And oftentimes what's familiar is actually not the best for us um, because we developed these certain survival mechanisms and patterns when we were younger into our young adulthood and or in our adulthood. And they're not good for us, but they're familiar. So we keep doing them. We know you know, they're not great, but like, we know how to do that. We know how to be in that kind of a relationship. We know how to have that kind of attachment style. And so we keep perpetuating it until finally the messages become loud enough and clear enough that hopefully we hear them and see them and and can't ignore them anymore. Um, But it's really rough. And so I just, I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge the difficulty. And I think the more we can acknowledge the difficulty of this process of reinvention, of reinventing ourselves, of telling a new story, opting out of one story before really knowing what the new story is to tell, to being fluid and and gaining comfort on shaky ground, gaining comfort coming into ourselves in a mature way that will require us to be like, yeah, that thing that I do is not working. That's hard. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that it's hard uh, in case any of you are going through something like that, just taking a few breaths and being okay with it as best we can. I think that is to sort of breathe into the grief of change is both one of the most difficult and excruciating and painful and yet also the most beautiful and infused with gratitude experiences that I've ever had in life. I know it sounds weird, but sometimes I think about those few years that I spent in Topanga, California, living in a cabin in the woods with my freaking face exploding with cystic acne everywhere, not going out in the world, walking away from so many relationships and and people and things that gave me structure and value and worth. And it was so horrifying and so painful and was so drawn out and long and excruciating And yet I miss it sometimes because I, I was so alive. Everything was so colorful, which isn't to say pretty, but just infused with life force. And that sort of like intermingling of grief and love and pain and gratitude. Like I didn't understand what gratitude was until I was like, in the worst pain ever, which doesn't mean I was changing like, oh, I shouldn't let me feel gratitude so that I don't feel this pain. No, no, no. Like the pain itself, feeling the pain was at the same time, simultaneously infused with gratitude, which was wild. (laughs) So if you're in that space, whether it's really, really intense, like mine was, a few years ago, or intense, but maybe not as intense <laughs> as is the place I'm in. I feel that I'm in at the moment. Be grateful for it, which is again not to dismiss it or to to opt out of the pain. I think that's a really toxic love and light spiritual bypassing bullshitty thing that we've been taught. Like, oh well, have a gratitude journal, so when you feel sadness or pain, you can just like opt into the gratitude instead. No. I mean actually being and feeling grateful for the pain and being really present in it and feeling like you, there's something here to learn. That's how I think of these things, at least. And it fills me with so much groundedness that otherwise, if I didn't understand or didn't believe in the process and the journey... Like, I don't really know how I would survive without that. So it's okay to feel totally freaked out and totally scared and totally alone. And yeah, that's life. Life is up and down and good and bad. And one gives way to the other and we can't opt out of either one. Okay, so before I bring you this conversation, um, I have signed up for Substack which has been really cool and really fun. And I'm really sort of moving my entire, or trying to move my entire sort of like podcast community and space over to Substack. I've done a lot of different things to try to create community for this group. I set up these WhatsApp group chats for about 30 or so listeners each, which eventually morphed into a Discord server, which I still have, but I am really feeling like I would like to bring as much of that community interaction and engagement over to Substack as possible. Um, what's really cool about Substack is that if you sign up and you can sign up for free, you can also sign up and donate to the podcast and this project if you like, but there's nothing behind a paywall that you can't, um, get if you sign up for free. Which of course doesn't mean I don't appreciate the financial contributions because I do, and I plan to keep this podcast ad free. Um, and so, your support, financial support, is really the only kind of financial support I'm ever going to get from this podcast. But if you can't afford it, you can still sign up for free and you get access from um, writing from me. I've been sending out a lot of uh, pieces of various lengths and have a lot more um, in the works. And you also get notified via email every time I. Uh, post a podcast. And what's cool about this is when you get notified, but also there's now a comment thread so that if you want to share your thoughts on an episode like this one, for example, um, you can go in and leave me a comment. And so I get to interact with listeners in a way that I didn't get to before. When I had a Patreon account, you had to pay in order (laughs) to get access to the bonus features. There was no such thing as a comment thread on the posts, on the episodes, Um, but now there is. So if you're listening to this now, Uh, I highly recommend if you don't, if you haven't signed up for Substack yet, go put your email address in, find the thread for this post and leave me a comment. Say, hi, I heard you talk about this on your podcast. Um, Of course, you can listen to the episode first and then leave me a comment about what you thought afterwards as well. I'll I'll put another reminder at the end of the conversation. Um, But it's really cool. I'm going to be doing things, uh, something called like an open thread. So I'll post something and just open up the comments so that you guys can write questions to me, communicate with each other. I'm going to try to pick like themes and discussion topics so that we can engage on something in particular. Um, that was one thing that I think was difficult on Discord was that it was very open-ended, and so people just got kind of overwhelmed and didn't know what to say. And so I'm hoping that creating these open threads on Substack will give us a topic of conversation. I have some really, really, really exciting announcements. Um, sort of the new next iteration of the book club that I'm going to offer, which is far, far more than just a book club. Uh, So you can find that announcement in the next week or so coming to you via Substack. I send out like monthly newsletters. Um, Yeah, there's lots going on there. I would love to meet you, especially if you're a free listener. If you haven't signed up for Patreon in the past, this is a way to get to know you. And that's awesome because I really want to get to know you and I really want all of us to support each other in these especially difficult times, personally and collectively, but also support each other in good times, of course, and joy as well. So Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S.substack.com is where you can find all of that. Come join, say hi. Would love to meet you. So let's see, what am I going to play you into this conversation with? I'm going to play you into this conversation with a song called Be Like Water by Low Wolf. This was actually a song that was added, uh, for my lunar circle, um, I create, uh, I've created a collaborative playlist for each astrological sign. And so every time people take the lunar c- circle, and today is our last class actually in the fourth round, um, all of the participants get to add songs that remind them of whatever the astrological archetype is uh relative to the specific playlist. And so this was added by Jenny. Shout out to Jenny to our Pisces playlist. And Pisces is all about letting go and being fluid and honestly death and uh both literati- literally and figuratively. Um the death that is required in order to start anew. It's the last sign in the zodiac, so it's really about Sort of diffusing and the process of diffusing and allowing yourself to be broken down into little pieces before the process of being reinvented in the spring with Aries. Um, and so I think this song uh, is really um, makes sense for this podcast because that's a lot of what we discuss the process of undoing ourselves and letting go so that we can reconstruct something in the future. Um yeah so enjoy the song enjoy the conversation and I will catch you all on the other side
1: Let me be like water fluid and forgiving Let maybe
0: Again, twice Again. in like a week. I'm, it's great. I was just saying before we started recording that we should just like make this a regular thing because it's so fucking refreshing totally. to talk yeah. to yeah. someone. Yeah. Who you,
2: you make someone. me feel. You make me feel sane in an insane world. So yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And I hope we're we're making all of you feel sane in an insane world as oh, well. Oh goodness, yes. <laughs> all get in a room and just lay out a big sigh of relief. Yes. Um, so yeah, so this is, um, I'm really excited, first of all, to welcome Lindsay back to the podcast is the second time she's been on and, um, also have this be a part two of the part one conversation that we started on Mm -hmm. Lindsay's podcast, the holistic trauma healing podcast. Um, and yeah, we, I think, I mean, I, I've been following you for a while and we've been chatting and I think we, Have very similar ways of engaging with the world when it comes to like critical thinking and curiosity and wanting to sort of get to the bottom of things and taking all the information in and then trying to sort through like what do we actually feel versus what everyone else is thinking. Um, And one of the topics that we uh, both like to engage in and think about is spirituality and the multitude of complexities that extend out from that. So I know you spoke a bit about this on my podcast when I first had you on, but um, I wanted to have you sort of reiterate the story a bit because we're going to be focusing on it more specifically today, which is your upbringing in fundamentalist Christianity Mm -hmm. and um, the sort of transition, I would say, to where you are now, whatever that is, I won't define it for you, but as far as belief and meaning... Um, and feeling like there's something greater going on in the world, like I'd be really interested to hear how you sort of got from point A to point B.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a bumpy ride. So um, yeah, I was raised in the South, um, in the Bible Belt, and my introduction to evangelical Christianity and my journey of Jesus and salvation and all of that started when I was eight years old. I was at a vacation Bible school and this old man preacher got up in front of a room of little kids and was basically like, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? And, you know, here I am like eight years old and I'm like, oh my gosh, I I don't know. Like, but how how nice that you're telling me that you have the answer if I just pray this prayer and accept this Jesus into my heart and promise to live my life as this good Christian girl. And, and so that was like my entry into my own personal relationship with Jesus, which it took me until I was like deconstructing and deconverting from Christianity over 20 years later to be like. Wow. I was literally like scared into the arms of Jesus. Like I was literally frightened into the arms of Jesus and how fucked up that was like, and how different, like, and a lot of people who criticize me for what I have to say about evangelical Christianity and and they're like, well, that's not how it is really. Like, I'm sorry, that was your experience, but, but Jesus is love and Jesus is hope. And like you know, all of that. And I'm just like, like, I'm so glad for you that like your introduction and relationship with Jesus was not fear-based. Like, great, good for you. But mine was. And then my entire life, like my my childhood, my teenage years, my 20s, and the beginning of my 30s was really all about being submitted to this idea that without Jesus's death on the cross and my acceptance of that, that I was bad, I was sinful. Um, My heart was wicked above all things. Um, I couldn't trust my heart or my intuition. Um, Everything had to be weighed against what the Bible said about it. And not only did I have to weigh everything against what the Bible said about it, but I also had to be submitted to men and that my, my being a woman was like automatically made me like second to men. And so I twisted and contorted and adjusted myself in all kinds of really creative fucked up ways in order to fit into the box that I was told I was supposed to fit in. So in my early um, teenage years, like starting around the age of 12, that looked like a lot of purity culture, which was this movement that swept through evangelical Christianity, especially in the Bible belt in the South um, in the late nineties, two thousands, that was really centered on, um, sexual purity and remaining a virgin until you were married, especially if you were a girl. Um, and it was focused a lot on modesty and how, again, it was the focus on girls was so crazy. I look back Mm -hmm. at that now and I'm like, I was in churches and, and church camps and retreats and conferences full of men, like boys and girls, men and women. And the majority of the message was like heavily focused on women and women's bodies. And so for example, like it was immodest to wear a bikini or a spaghetti strap dress or a tube top, God forbid, because by showing that skin, you were guaranteed to attract the attention of boys and they would lust after you. And if they did, that was your fault because you caused your brother to stumble. And whenever I shared this on Caroline Dooner's um, The Fuck It podcast she was like, wait, wait a minute. Like your brothers literally lusted after you. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I need to like translate this for you. Like when you're a Christian, all the other Christians who are male automatically become your brothers in Christ. So you are causing your brothers in Christ to stumble with these like, you know, slutty outfits of spaghetti strap dresses and bikinis. So, um, so it it caused me to really like feel a lot of shame about my body and especially about my sexuality and i used to think that there was something wrong with me because i always had a boyfriend when i was um a teenager like i think i calculated the amount of time from the age of 14 to the age of 18 that i didn't have a boyfriend and the total time in four years was like four months. <laughs> so yeah. I always had a boyfriend. I never had any problems having a boyfriend and my boyfriends, we always went to the same church. So we had the same belief system. We were going to these true love weights, purity culture things together, not sitting together, of course, because the girls sat with the girls and the boys sat with the boys. But um, <laughs> so it was like, but I couldn't deny that I had this sexual curiosity and my body was awakening sexually and my hormones were, you know, surging through my body. And like I I wanted to like dry hump a fence post. I mean, like I was just <laughs> like, you know, like anything that yes. moved. Yeah. And and So I, I would like, I could not control my curiosity and like this insatiable desire to feel pleasure and to be connected to my body and to be connected to another human sexually. Um, and so I did remain a virgin until my wedding night, technically, but I tell people I was like a virgin by the hair of my chinny chin chin because I did everything else. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, but what that did for me, um, and I only just recently realized is like it, it, it's almost like it has forever connected pleasure and guilt for me. Mm. And I've I've literally only just realized that it's like the neural pathways of my brain formed to connect pleasure with guilt. And so I cannot think of a time when I was able to receive pleasure, not just sexual pleasure either. Like it happens when I eat as well. Whenever I'm like, oh, this is so good and I'm full and then I want more because it tastes good, there's that like inner critical voice going like, you shouldn't do that. You're full, you're gaining weight, you're gluttonous or like whatever. And so I am now like, now that this is in my awareness, I am now actively and intentionally working on disconnecting pleasure and guilt because my neuropathway is like associated to this day. I've been married for 20 years. Like it's totally fine for me to have sex after being with the same partner for 20 years. But even still I feel weird about like expressing pleasure or communicating during sex and asking for what I want, or even trying new things. Like I still feel so much guilt and shame around it. Mm -hmm. So that's like one area of my development that evangelical Christianity heavily influenced. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other area of development was just like who I am as a woman. So even outside of sexually, um, It was always my dream as a little girl to grow up and marry a pastor, and (laughs) I did. And I'm still married to him, but he's no longer a pastor. (laughs) Former um, pastor, even better. (laughs) Yes, a former, a former evangelical (laughs) worship pastor. (laughs) So I was always super attracted to musicians. I still am. And so, um, you know, when I met David, it was it was literally love at first sight. And like, I was all goo goo eyed and giddy. And, um, but we merged our lives together at the tender age of 19 for me was when I got married and I was a mother by the time I was 20 and, uh, a mother again before I was 23. So I had kids back to back and it was like, I was 23 years old and I really thought, Oh my gosh, I've arrived. Like everything that I dreamed of as a little girl, the Christian husband, being in ministry, having babies, staying home with my babies, like I've arrived and I look back now and I'm just like, like, fuck, I've got a lot of reclamation to do because I thought that I had arrived at this magical place, but really, um, I just lost myself you know, I just lost myself and I gave myself away to the church, to the men who told me what to wear and how to act and how to be quiet and all of that. And, um, yeah, it's been a reclamation of like self ever since, honestly. And, um, when I was 30, how old was I? 30, 31. Um, I watched a documentary one afternoon. Um, my, my homeschool, my Christian homeschooled children were taking a nap and I was sitting down on my bed to fold some laundry and my husband was at work at the church and I sat down to watch documentary that was called, um, the Bible tells me so. And, like I was a hundred percent homophobic when I turned the documentary on. And when I finished the documentary, I was a hundred percent not homophobic anymore. And it was like an instant shift for me. Mm-hmm. And I asked David to watch the documentary when he got home from work that day. And he was like, Ugh, I don't need to watch that. I already know what I believe about that. And I was like, no, please, seriously. So he did. And he had the exact same experience as I did, like started homophobic, finished not homophobic. And that was really our Honestly, we were over 30 at this point. And that was really the first time in our lives that we openly, and I mean openly like with each other. and We didn't tell other people about this, but like we openly with each other were like, wait a second, if if what we were taught about gay people is wrong, I wonder what else we've been taught that's wrong. Um, and so that started us on a journey of. Podcasts and YouTube videos and documentaries and books, and just we were insatiable. And like he would go to the church during the day and be a pastor, and then he would come home in the evenings and we would have these like secret conversations that no one else knew about together. And so we like went on the journey together. And within um six months of that, um, he was resigning from the church. And I'm really proud of the way we left. A lot of pastors, when they leave churches, it's very scandalous and um, you know, either they've, they've slipped up and they've done something wrong, or they've had an affair with someone in the church, or they've, you know, slipped into addiction or porn or something like that. Um, and the way that we left the church was actually very peaceful. And I'm really proud of the way we did it because we did it without a scandal. And like the day we, that was our last Sunday, nobody knew what we had been going through and the questions we'd been asking. And, Um, the way that we were able to leave was that in addition to being a really talented musician, my husband was also a really talented IT person. And so he was able to find just an IT job, not at a church, but um, as a network administrator for a school that was about eight hours away. And um, so that was our way of leaving. We were just like, he's found this job and now, and we're moving, you know, and it was just like simple and there was no scandal involved. And then once we moved, like, that was when we really got serious, you know, like we quit going to church (laughs) and like we, we started like, you know, letting ourselves get tipsy if we drank alcohol. And then, you know, it was just like all these things that most people do in their twenties that we didn't get to do in our twenties. We started doing in our thirties. Like I smoked weed for the first time when I was like 33, you know, (laughs) I never tried it in high school (laughs) or college. I wouldn't have even known where to go to find someone who had it if I had wanted to try it. So, um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a ride and, and we still, I mean, this isn't related to our conversation, but like it, it changed relationships with friends that we no longer have. Um, my husband's family is still very much evangelical pastors, literally all of them, um, immediate and extended family. And it's changed the nature of our relationships with family. And there's, there's a connection that was broken because that's not a commonality that we have anymore. And so that's that's a weird thing. Um, and then kind of, I I kind of wanted to be an atheist for a little bit. And so I read like Richard Dawkins books and like, was like, all right, I'll be an atheist. Like that makes sense. But that lasted for like 15 minutes. And then I was just like, like, even without Jesus and without the Bible and without the rigidness of this religion, like I still deeply know within myself that there is a power greater than me at work, like even as a Christian, there were multiple things that would happen in my life that I would say were miracles. Like Mm -hmm. I could not deny that there was something at work. Um, Synchronicities, I wouldn't have called it that back then, but like, Mm -hmm. I would call it that now, like there was definitely something at work there. And um, so it didn't feel right to just to say that I was an atheist and be like, there's nothing, like nothing exists. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, then I was sort of agnostic for a little bit. And that was like the beginning of me sort of getting curious about other forms of spirituality. Um, and so now that all the, like, all holds were off, you know, yeah. like I started exploring witchcraft and I started exploring astrology and I started exploring animism and I did some psychedelic journeys. And I, I mean, I just was like, I'm allowed to do whatever I want now. You know, it's the first time in my life that I was like, I'm allowed to do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. And, and I did. And so where I've landed now is I don't have a a label for my spirituality. Um, like it's, it's very earth centered. It's, it's pretty witchy. I'm pretty into plants and rocks <clears throat> and like hugging trees and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> like, you know, there's yeah. this, there's this meme. I'm, I'm familiar. sure <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there's this meme, I'm sure you've seen it, where it's like, um it's this person. It's just a drawing. And it's this person, know like
0: exactly what you're about to say standing next to
2: the tree, you know? And it's like, like the friends are like, Hey, you want to hang out later later? And the guy's like, I can't, I'm busy. And like what he's busy doing is like reading a diagram for how to like merge his aura with the aura yeah. of the tree. It's so funny. And I'm like, every time I see that I'm like, yep. <laughs> like, um, so, I mean, now it's just like a mix of like, there's some animism in there. There's some, some witchy things in there. There's, uh, some meditation in there. There's cannabis Mm -hmm. in there. There's drawing Oracle cards. There's using a pendulum, like there's making offerings on my land to keep my little land spirits happy. Like there's psychedelics occasionally, like it doesn't really have a label. It's just this nebulous collection of all these different things that really speak to me. And that, feel aligned with me and bring me some kind of like comfort and connection and ritual. And um I just, I sort of just believe that like I'm God and you're God and like that tree outside my window is God and that plant sitting on my shelf is God. And like the animals are God. And I mean, that's just, that's basically what I believe. Like we're all one and we're all part of the same whole And we're all expressions of the universe experiencing itself. Like that's, I don't know what you call that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. If there's one thing I feel like I've learned in life, especially when it comes to spirituality or identifying as all of these things, it's that like language is so insufficient in so many ways. Completely, Um, (laughs) yeah, completely. It was interesting listening to you talk about purity culture and- you know, the sort of connection between guilt and pleasure. And it was always interesting when I grew up, I had this intense desire that I couldn't necessarily explain, which was that I always wanted to work with former like ex-Mormon kids who were gay and like support them through that process of like likely being excommunicated uh, from their entire world. And it sort of occurred to me as I got older that like so much of culture, not just Fundamentalist religious culture, although I think that is a particularly potent form of this, but like so much of the culture in general is like a cult, you know. Um, I mean, I had the same experiences. Like a very close friend of mine called me a slut because I was wearing a tank top. And I too had like kissed one boy by that point, you know, and I nice. like had nice monogamous relationships, like you know, one or two until I was 30. Like I was not actively promiscuous whatsoever. Um, and yet that still didn't like spare me from being accosted in this way. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see now how I feel like my desire to, um, help those kids was also sort of like feeling like I had to extricate myself from so many belief systems that we all grow up under. Um, and I feel like that's, i think partially probably why we connect in this way because it's like we sort of think critically about everything not necessarily just religion or
2: yeah yeah mm-hmm. and honestly like i i'm really glad you brought up critical thinking because um i do think that there are a lot of people involved in various cult like systems whether that's yeah. religion or um, like you and I both have a lot of experience with what I think is like the cult of wellness culture
0: right.
2: um, and like toxic wellness. Um, you know, there's politics, like being on the left can really look like a cult sometimes. Like, um, so I think it's just really interesting that we have these experiences with like uh, all of these various branches of cult-like things that infiltrate our society and how I I genuinely do think that there are some people who go into that blind. And like, we talked about this on my podcast and you were talking about discernment and like the role of discernment when the consumer is choosing to follow a certain teacher or guru or whatever. And I do think that there are people who, who genuinely do lack discernment and I don't have an answer for that. Honestly, I don't think I ever lacked discernment. I've always had a pretty heightened sense of intuition. I've always been able to trust my gut. Um, I got in my twenties, especially, I got really good at like silencing that critical thinker in myself and like silencing that voice that would be like, Whoa, wait, a, wait a second. Like there's some questions here. I mean, I did, I got really good at silencing it, yeah. but I honestly think that my critical thinking skills is what saved me. Um, even in my childhood, like I think that I would have been more abused by my stepfather if I hadn't had a smart mouth and like a critical thinking brain to be able to be like, wait a second. Like you're a fucking usher in the church. You're like an elder in the church. And you're like beating us with your belt. Like, I mean, I'm like nine years old calling this out. Right. And I think that the abuse that I, that I could have potentially suffered would have been worse if I hadn't been able to like spot that and call it out and be like, you're fucking hypocrite. Like I wasn't saying fuck, of course, but um so I just I don't know, I just felt right to like mention that I do think there are people who really don't have access to critical thinking. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. And it involves like trauma and being disembodied and being in your head all the time and looking outward for validation and all of that. But I think that there are people who do have um the ability to think critically and ask those really hard questions. But because that's generally discouraged by all of these cult-like binary belief yeah. systems that have infiltrated our society, we learn how to um, to tune it out, you know, yeah. and we we silence it and shut it down. But I don't know; it just felt appropriate to like throw that in.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was also gonna say like. I feel like I, I don't have a ton of evidence necessarily, but I feel like your experience of sitting down to watch one documentary and changing your mind about basically the entirety of your like worldview is sounds unique to me. And I'm I'm curious if you've thought about that. Like, why do you feel like is it the critical thinking? Like, why were you sort of primed to be able to take that in and not feel like, oh no, this is ridiculous. Like, I know what's true. I know what's right. This is what people have been teaching me my whole life. There's no way this documentary, you know, I would need to see 70 more documentaries for like, right? Like that's such a quick turnaround that to me, um, I don't know, it seems unique in this yeah. regard. Yeah,
2: you're right. And I, I mean, the mm-hmm. first thing that comes up, I haven't actually really thought about that a lot. So I appreciate the question. But the first thing that comes up is like, I made a really big deal out of turning 30. Like probably a bigger deal than most 30 year olds would like my, I remember my mom telling me that when she turned 30, she got super depressed. She like cried all the time. She just felt like she was like old and withered and like, you know, she wasn't going to be desirable anymore. And she'd lost her body and like all of this kind of stuff. When she turned 30, I had a completely different experience and outlook on turning 30. And I was like, fucking stoked to turn 30. And I was, I told my husband, I was like, I want a huge party like I want, I'm going to celebrate this. I'm going to live this up. I celebrated my birthday for like a month. Like I was so excited to turn 30. I didn't feel any shred of like regret or like I was like shriveling up and dying or I wasn't desirable anymore. Any of that. I didn't have any of that experience. And you know more about this than I do, but I'm curious what was happening. Like during my Saturn return, you know, like leading up to turning 30, because I remember telling my husband a lot, like, I never really felt like my voice mattered, Um, whether that was because I was a girl, whether that was because I was a girl in church, whether that was because I had a stepfather who was like super narcissistic and abusive. Like, I just never felt like my voice mattered. I always had a voice, but I never felt like it mattered. And it was like, I told my husband, I feel like when I'm 30, I'm finally going to be an adult. Like, I feel like when I say something, people are finally going to listen to me. And so I think it had to do with like, honestly turning 30 and just literally, I don't know if I created it for myself or it was just something I chose or what, but like having this newfound sense of confidence in myself and, and just being like, not consciously, but I think unconsciously there was something in me that was just like, you're, you're going to suffocate. If you keep doing this, you're going to suffocate. If you keep silencing yourself and you keep putting yourself second to men and you keep hiding your body and you keep not embracing your sexuality. I mean, I wasn't having those conscious thoughts, but I think that, I don't know, astrologically, energetically, ancestrally, something was going on that was like getting me ready to shift my life like pretty radically. And I mean, to be fair, the only thing that that documentary really changed my mind about was gay people and their like sinfulness or non-sinfulness. Like I still very much believed in Jesus as the savior. I still very much believed like that the Bible was mostly literally true. I still very much believed in going to church and tithing. I even still believed in the submission of women to men. Like I still did believe in those things. And so that was like the process of deconstruction afterwards was sort of like untangling all the threads of that, knot. the domino Um, effect. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was the, it was the big domino that went over first for sure. Yeah.
0: Yes. It's so, it's so strange to the sort of parallel of our, I mean, not necessarily parallel of our experience, but like, I also watched that documentary, My Dad is Gay. And I was also, I had this strange interest in religion, which I think was my, like, subconscious's way of trying to like get me to understand that to have that I could have belief and meaning in something, even if it wasn't necessarily (laughs) fundamentalist religion. So I was like fascinated by this world, but didn't understand why that was. Um, but I always was, I was always like, Oh my God, this is so beautiful that like people can be consider themselves Christian or consider themselves like believers in God, but not like take the Bible literally. And like, Oh, Jesus kind of had some interesting things to say. And like, okay, wait, like I'm sort of trying to figure it out. So it's interesting to, yeah, I just like have such a potent memory of watching that documentary myself um, in such a different context. And yet we were like on, like exploring these very similar realms. Um, yeah. So you asked me a question when I was on your show, which was like, did you ever find yourself feeling sort of skeptical or judgmental of people who believed in things, thinking it was like weak or like below you or just kind of silly that people would believe in God. And I think another unique thing about you and something I really respect and have always respected in a lot of people are people that came, have come out of fundamentalist religion, but as a result, didn't reject it in its entirety and like found their own way through, whether that was like reconstructing Christianity or just finding meaning and belief in something else, something spiritual or esoteric. Um, so I'm curious, as far as your own sort of critical thinking and like self-analysis, was there a moment that you thought like, okay, but by believing in something now, even if it's not Jesus or the Bible, like, is that the same? Or, you know, like, um, how did you sort of make that transition? Was there any kind of like self-critique in that process?
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I was... I never felt like belief in something was weak. Like when you shared that with me, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. I've never I've never thought of it that way, but I could immediately see, like, oh, of course, I could see. I could see how someone would think that." Right. Um and I never I never believed that the belief in God or the belief in ancestors or whatever else. I never have believed that that makes someone weak. Um I've I've always kind of I mean, especially since deconstructing and deconverting from Christianity like I didn't have this in my vocabulary before, but like, I'm a very much like live and let live person now. And so whatever, whatever you need to feel like whole and safe and meaningful in this world, like I'm, I'm in support of that as long as it's not like hurting self or others. Right. So I never did have the sense that it was weak. Um, I just know for me, and I think I said this earlier, there was just this deep, like intuitive sense that not believing in something was not in alignment. Like, and I respect people who don't, like I respect atheists who are like, Nope, there's nothing like there's, there's no soul. We don't go anywhere after we die. Like there's no afterlife, nothing. I respect that. I don't agree with it only because not because I have scientific proof, not because I have, you know, any of that only because like I, the only proof I have is the deep knowing within myself. You know, and that's not something I can measure. It's not something I can write and cite studies about. It's not anything like that. So, um, I, I do think that reclaiming spirituality, especially away from religion and even away, like, I think atheism can be a religion as well. Um, people can be cultishly atheist, which is ironic, (laughs) um,
0: cultishly scientific. It's all a belief structure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been the most important thing for me is, um, having been sincerely oppressed, like, honestly, and I know as me as a white woman, it's like eye rolling that I would say I was sincerely oppressed, but like evangelical Christianity is sincerely oppressive to women. And it doesn't matter what color or what race those women are like as a whole, women are, are oppressed in evangelicalism. And so like, the reclamation of my spirituality cannot be divorced from my reclamation of self Um, because coming out of that and untangling that knot and unraveling all of those threads, like one at a time. And some of them were happening simultaneously because a lot of them can't really be separated. Like it was like every time I realized that what I had submitted to really did rob me from my connection to myself and my connection with the greater world. You know, like evangelical Christianity is not like socialist. It's very capitalist, you know, like evangelical Christianity really doesn't give a shit about the planet, really. So in untangling myself from that, like not only did I find more of a reclamation of myself, but the natural progression was more of a connection to community, um, service, caring about the earth, um, like things like that. And I don't even know if I answered your question, but that's, that's what I got. I don't
0: really care if you did. I loved that <laughs> answer and that reflection for sure. Um, yeah, I have a couple of friends of mine. They have this project called death in the garden where they basically critique mainstream environmentalism. That's saying that like, we can't solve capitalist problems with capitalist solutions. So like if we're mining for lithium for electric cars, like that's not helping the situation. Right. Um, And, uh, yeah, they talk about this idea of like the gods we serve, like what gods are we serving? Because whether we know or are conscious of this or not, we are serving certain belief systems and structures, right? Whether that's Jesus and fundamentalist religion, whether that's, you know, capitalism, whether that's, um, you know, system scientific thought and like things like true and false. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely something to think about for all of us. Like we're all doing that. And the sooner we can like gain insight around our own sort of like personal and collective mythologies, like the better, because otherwise we're operating totally blindly.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the key is like, it's Christianity does not teach self-reflection and self-awareness. It's very much about like, I mean, sure, there's elements of like, if you're sinning, you need to repent and like, you need to change your life and ask God to forgive you and ask God to give you the strength to be a better person and not sin anymore. Like certainly there is that. So the self is involved in that, but on the whole um, binary thinking and belief, cult-like thinking is very much like outward focused. And it's all about like, what are they doing that doesn't align with what me and we are doing. Right. So it like, it creates all of this othering and, um, you know, it, it feels really good at this stage of my life to not be like, like, I genuinely don't have a lot of conversations anymore, or even a lot of thoughts anymore where I'm like, I am on this side and all of those people over there are on that side. And I hold the, the one and only truth for this thing. And those people are completely clueless, which is something that I really genuinely used to think whenever I was a Christian. So, um, and and of course being a Christian an evangelical one, it's, it was my job to save them. right yeah. like it was my job to evangelize <laughs> to them and to tell them why they were wrong and to convert them to my side
1: right.
2: which we see happening fucking everywhere which is why like i think evangelical christianity is the most accepted cult in the entire world but we're all like like you were saying these structures of belief whether it's capitalism or or something else like we we all find ourselves um drawn to these things. And I think it's because they offer a level of certainty, perceived certainty. So like in religion or Christianity, for example, the certainty is if I believe this thing and follow these teachings, then I will go to heaven and like, I will be saved from my sin and from the devil. Right. So in, I think like woke for example, there's like this certainty that if I do all of these things and call out all of these people, then I can be certain that I'm good and I'm doing the right thing. So, um, you know, recognizing that certainty really doesn't exist and that othering people in order to make oneself feel righteous or good or worthy or whatever, like it, to me, true spirituality is like, whatever is pointing me back to myself and not pointing me towards all the ways that other people are bad or wrong. And because I have this insane respect for the earth and through both psychedelic experiences and experiences with cannabis, as well as experiences of just like being in nature without my phone. (laughs) Like I cannot deny that, that like, I've seen the earth breathing. I've like felt the earth breathe. I've like seen trees breathe. I've seen trees dancing with each other. Like I may not be able to see it in this state of consciousness all the time, but I have seen it in other states of consciousness to the point that I don't believe that it was a hallucination. I just believe I was in a level of consciousness where I was able to see something that I can't see in my present state of consciousness. So it's just as real to me. Right. And finding beauty and and connection and meaning and things like that, like you can't see the earth breathing and then go and like throw your plastic water bottle on the ground. You can't. You know, yeah. you can't without divorcing yourself from self. Honestly, you can't. Um, because if you're polluting the earth, if you're fucking with the earth, then you really are fucking with yourself. And people don't recognize that. Like, and, and so I, I don't know, I feel like I'm very tangentially. <laughs> it's all great. It's all,
0: great. <laughs> it's all good. Um, okay. yeah, no, I mean, I totally, totally agree and have felt the same. Um I did want to ask you a bit about, because I know sort of following your exit from Christianity that you went through a very intense dark night of the soul, which we spoke a bit about the last time you were on the show. Um, But I wanted to talk about it again, specifically now in the context of belief and meaning. Mm. Um, Because I feel like I also, during my dark night of the soul, although I didn't come into it with belief or meaning, I certainly found it within that space. Um, and I think back and think like, I, I really don't know what I would have done or how I would have survived without that sort of groundedness of like, there's a purpose to this. Like I'm learning something and there's no way that I can control this and get out of this. Um, so I'm curious how that your sort of like groundedness and meaning and what you believed in, um, played a role in and helped you during that process and like what that process looked like.
2: Hmm, That's a great question. Um, so my dark night of the soul happened in late 2018. And by that point, I had only been deconstructed and deconverted from Christianity for a couple of years. So I would say that my, really the catalyst for my, um, desire to learn more about my own ancestry, um, because I felt like the, I felt like what I was experiencing. And I told this to several people, during that time, it was like, yeah, there's a lot of shit going on. And I mean, I was having health challenges as well as mental health challenges, but part of it didn't feel like mine. You know what I'm saying? Like part of it felt like, yeah, like this isn't just my shit that I'm dealing with here. Um, it felt very, I mean, the only way I know how to describe it is ancestral, Mm -hmm. it just felt very ancestral and like, That during that period of my life, I had more conversations with my parents than I've ever had. And just basically was like, tell me everything you remember about everyone you remember, you know, from your childhood, from your life. Like, what are the stories? I don't know them. I need to know them. And what I discovered was my maternal grandmother, which was interestingly, like where I felt like a lot of the the stuff was coming from, like my meme, I called her Mima and like my Mima just kept coming up and I was dreaming about her and she just kept coming up. And so I was just like, okay, there's, there is something, it's something happening here. Well, it turns out like I was having all of these pelvic issues. And when I was asking my mom to tell me, like, tell me about Mima's like pelvic health, (laughs) like, you know, what the fuck was going on? Mm. And, um, I learned that like she went through shit in like her female health, you know, and she actually had like a full uterine prolapse when she was in her fifties where her uterus was literally coming out of her vagina and had to have it surgically fixed. And while she was having the surgery, she hemorrhaged and almost died. And of course, like, like pelvic care and pelvic therapy didn't exist then, like not, not for her. Like she wouldn't have access, had access to that. Yeah. Um, and like, she had a lot of sexual trauma in her life and just so many things. And when my mom told me about that, I was like, okay, this is making more sense. Like, because she didn't have the resources to heal that or even the awareness, but like I do. And my mom also has had pelvic shit happen. Um, Like she had a miscarriage um, in like 1990 and she um, had always had horrible periods for most of her adult life. Um, My mom also had a lot of like menstrual trauma. So like, um, and when I say menstrual trauma, I'm meaning things like shame. Like my mom grew up extremely poor. And so they didn't have money for her to have like more than one maxi pad a day when she had a period. And so my mom has memories of like, her one pad that she was allowed to have that she could afford like completely filling up with blood and like being at school and blood trickling down her legs, like in front of people. And like the, the shame that she felt because of that, you know, um, it makes me like super teary just to think about my mom going through that. But then whenever my mom, um, was pregnant with my little brother. Um, she had a placental abruption and almost died. And my little brother almost died and she had to have an emergency C-section. And when they had her cut open, um, the doctor saw a little fibroid tumor on her uterus. And, um, my stepdad was in the room whenever she had the C-section and my stepdad was like, the doctor pointed it out to him, to her, you know, to my stepdad and was like, this is going to need to be taken care of at some point. And my stepdad was like, well, you've got her cut open. Can you not just do it right now? And the doctor was like, no, if I cut anything else, she's going to bleed to death. So sure enough, two years later, um, my mom's periods got terrible and she ended up going back and that little fibroid that was about the size of a, you know, a thumb um, had grown to the size of a cantaloupe and she ended up needing a full hysterectomy. Um, And so just knowing just what my mom and my grandmother went through and then all the pelvic issues I was having, it was just like very clear to me that what I was carrying in my body wasn't just mine. And, yeah. but I'm the only woman who's ever had awareness in my entire ancestral lineage of something like ancestral trauma, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: So, um, for me, like that dark night of the soul, it reconnected with me with my ancestors in a way that I'm super grateful for. Um, And to this day, like I have my Meemaw right here. Like I keep her right here. She's one of my guides. Um, And she's always with me. And it's so funny. I I can be cooking in my kitchen. I cook with her cast iron skillet every day. And like, I can be cooking in my kitchen and I can just almost feel like she's like right there, (laughs) you know, sort of like watching over my shoulder. Um, I have her sense of humor, um, like very dry, witty, sometimes doesn't make sense. And I'm really grateful for that. And I also had those conversations with my dad too, just like tell me everything. I want to know everything. And I wrote things down and I did like ancestry research on ancestry.com and like mapped my family tree. And what I discovered in that was that I have a lot of Scottish Highlander ancestry, um, which then made so much sense because I watched Outlander, (laughs) which is my favorite show. And when I was watching Outlander, like I just... I could not get enough of it. And it wasn't just because Jamie and Claire's sexy relationship was so hot. (laughs) Like it was, it was like, I, I identify with that, like that time period and that life and all of that. And then sure enough, I'm doing, um, ancestry research and I come across this whole branch of my family that like lived in the Scottish highlands at the same time that like outlanders set in, in the 1700s and before. Mm -hmm. And like, had I, I even have a clan name of Fraser. Like it's so crazy. Wow. <laughs> so um, yeah, it just, it's given me um, the connection to my ancestry is huge. The connection to the earth is huge. And um, the rest of it is honestly like this big nebulous cloud of, I don't know what the fuck I'm just going with what feels good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And I, I totally relate. I had the exact same feeling of like, I remember going to therapy one time and I was like, either like some really fucked up shit happened to me when I was younger that I don't remember or like I'm processing other people's trauma because this is just too much. It just doesn't add up here. Um, So yes, definitely. And it, it, what you were saying brought up a point that sort of I wanted to circle back to, which is like, the way that we initially connected was around cancel culture and having been canceled um, and our sort of feeling liberal and leftist and yet totally not in alignment with that um, entire world and worldview and way of operating in the world. Um, and it occurred to me that I think what, you know, This When you said this thing about that people follow religion or these other belief structures in order to gain some degree of certainty, I think that's totally true, and I think it must also be belonging, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're so disconnected, we have no community, and so it's like, oh, okay, I can now be a part of a community who have a lot of unprocessed trauma around like gender or around race or, and go off and just cancel a bunch of people. And so my community is like angry people um, and I can belong here. And that makes me feel comforted in some way. And that through your dark night of the soul and through your spiritual beliefs and my spiritual beliefs, it's like a lot of that desire to belong like it just sort of disappears because we are able to find belonging in other things and in other Mm -hmm. ways. So whether that's Mm -hmm. like belonging to our ancestry or belonging to the earth, um, like that to me was a big one. Like I remember feeling, I mean, I literally didn't see anyone for like two years. I was just like living in a cabin in the woods with like severe health issues, crying on the floor with like crystals on my chest. Um, like that is what my life looked like but i remember thinking like this is so fucked up and like i don't know if i'll ever get better but as long as i have nature i'll be okay like i can belong here um and that was sort of profound for me and i guess i don't know sort of frustrating for me that i can't like <laughs> force that experience on other people <laughs> like how much time would we save in a lot of these sort of like ideological identitarian movements, if we could just find belonging in other ways that were less harmful, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um, And I like, it, it is interesting. I'm glad you brought up community and belonging because it is really interesting. I don't know how to explain this. I don't have a scientific explanation for it. Um, and maybe it goes along with what you were talking about on my podcast with like 5d Ascension or whatever, (laughs) but like, um, it was like when I was able to let go of the, the need to be certain about my salvation or my soul or my worth or my goodness, um, and really just like follow my soul's calling to explore witchcraft, plant medicine, um, nature, um, sacrifice, like stuff like that, just like really, really not having, and I want to put a pin in this. So don't let me forget to circle back because I'm about to do a tangent again, but (laughs) don't let me forget. Okay. So, so like, as I was researching my ancestry, I had this desire to learn as much information as I could historically about what my ancestor's spirituality would would have looked like. Um, and so my ancestry, like, obviously I'm pretty, pretty white. Um, but I have like this Northern European. So what is now France, Germany, Scotland, Scandinavia, um, like that's primarily my ancestry. And of course, those places have not always been called France and Germany and Scandinavia and Scotland and England. Like before that, you know, it was like the, the imaginary lines on the map weren't there or they were different than what they are now. And even before maps, like there were tribes living there, like Germanic tribes. And even before that, there was like Neolithic people living there. So I had this, like this desire to piece together historical information and sort of try to recreate a spirituality Um, of my own, that was earth honoring and honoring of my lineage. And that wasn't appropriating from like other cultures, like native American cultures or um, African cultures or whatever. Um, And the shitty thing was like, I couldn't find anything. Like I looked and looked and looked and I couldn't find anything because like, that is what colonization does, right? Like it erases everyone's connection to lineage and ancestry and ritual and tradition. And so we lose, we lose all of it. And it's not just black people or just indigenous people that are affected by this, it's white people too. And so in the absence of a connection to our own ancestral lineage and practice, that is where what we would call appropriation happens. But really, I don't think anyone is like waking up and willingly being like, you know what, I'm not going to worry about what my ancestors would have done. I think that what this indigenous person over here, like that looks cool. So I'm just going to steal that. Like, I don't think anyone's doing that. I think again, to your point about belonging, there is something about spiritual practice that creates an internal sense of belonging. And so we see that in other people, like we see that on Instagram and I do think that there are some genuinely like, um, responsible spiritual people on Instagram who give us a window into what their world and their practice looks like in a way that's like very inspirational and it tugs at us and it it like beckons us to be like, Hey, this is what you need. Like, this is what you're craving. Right. And we look at what they're doing and we're like, oh, that's what I need. I need to just go buy a bunch of sage and I need to go to the crystal store and I need to buy a bunch of crystals, most of which are probably unethically sourced. And we're mined by like children, you know, (laughs) in, in like jungles and shit. And like, like, so, because that's what we, we think that if I do that thing, then I will feel spiritual and I will feel like that. I think they feel like we think that, and I'm not saying that there's something wrong with that. I'm saying it speaks to our level of disconnection from lineage and from ancestry. It speaks to the atrocities of colonialism and how that genuinely affects everyone, no matter what color your skin is. And it speaks to, um, I also think, like how fundamentalist religion has played a part in colonization. Um, And it's, I think, is a symptom of our collective sickness as well, of just like, knowing that there is this void inside of each of us that is begging to be filled with connection to self, to land, to ancestry, um, to nature, to the ethers, like whatever that is. Like there is that hole in each of us, I believe, and it's begging to be filled. And when we see it on Instagram as like these super white vegan kale goddesses, like you know, like dancing with their like, (laughs) like dancing with their, like, you know, wavy sea sprayed hair. Like, I'm not saying that's bad. If, if someone like that is listening, I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying like, that's, that's what we (laughs) equate being spiritual to look like. And, that's not necessarily it, but we think that if we go after that and then we try to recreate that for ourselves and we're going to feel how we think that person feels. And really it is an individual journey. And the cool thing is, and I think this is what I was gonna circle back to is that when it comes to community, I do think that we're supposed to be spiritual alone. And I think we're supposed to be spiritual in community and because that's what our ancestors would have done, right? Like they were fucking spiritual together. <laughs> you yeah. know? They had ritual together. Um, and so like my community here, as I have, I guess, changed my own frequency, fuck bad taste in my mouth saying that, but I don't know how else to say it. Okay. I'll just be honest. If, if there's, if there's other language that you would prefer I use, please tell me. But like, I do think I vibe differently now than I did when I was going through my dark night of the soul. Like there's a clear vibrational distinguishing difference in my body. Um, I don't feel that like low level dark energy as much. I don't feel that like extreme spiritual soul pain as much. Like something in my field has changed. And as the things in my field have changed and I have been... Um, sovereign to practice my own spirituality and really go at it blind sometimes and to be willing to go into it blindly and being like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, I I really don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just following what feels good. Um, It's really interesting how other people have come into my life who live locally to me and they're sort of doing their own thing too. Like I have a really good friend who practices Norse heathenry. And so like, that's his ancestral practice. He has a lot of Scandinavian Norse heritage. And so he and his wife have gone down this path of like really studying Norse heathenry and like learning to read runes and reading Norse mythology and, um, you know, like learning how to make some of their own things out of animal furs because that's what their Viking ancestors would have done, like all of that. It's super fucking cool. I'm not into Norse heathenry, but like when they invite me over, for a ritual, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, let's do it. You know? So like last summer, um, it didn't rain here for months. I mean, it was bad. Like we had bad drought, wildfires everywhere. They were evacuating places locally to me. The closest the fires Mm -hmm. ever got to my house was like 15 miles away. Like it was scary. And I was over at my Norse heathen friend's house. And I just sort of jokingly was like, do you guys think that it's probably time for us to like do some mushrooms together and like maybe make an animal sacrifice and pray for rain? <laughs> and they were like, "Absolutely it is." <laughs> <laughs> so, that's what we fucking did, man. Yeah. We like like hippies in the woods, like in the middle of nowhere. Um we all contributed to like buy a pig that was like ethically raised. Um and we we did the things like we yeah. prayed, we prayed to the sky father to come and fertilize the earth mother. And like mm-hmm. we um we buried after we sacrificed the pig, we let it like its blood went onto the ground and we um we cooked it and all cooked it together. And we ate as much of it as we could. And when we were done, we buried it in the earth as a sacrifice and we prayed and the, the children were like dancing around and I even, it was so interesting. Like I've been working for the last year um, or not, I don't want to say working, but like intentionally trying to uncover more of the like divine feminine aspects of myself. And it was so interesting because that day um, I was like, you know, I mean, I was tripping on five grams of mushrooms. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a little thing. Um, But I was like wearing this like flowy skirt and just like very like, People can't see me, but you can. But like laying on this like log, like, you know, like, yeah. like embodying that archetype or whatever. And like the little girls were like gathering around me and like laying on my chest and like all this stuff. And they were like, we need someone to be the embodiment of the divine feminine as we pray to the the sky father or whatever. And like, everybody like looked at me and was like, there she is. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was so meaningful to me because it was like, I. I wanted to embody that, not knowing that it was going to happen that day because there wasn't really a plan. But like, that was an intention of mine is like, I want to embody more of the divine feminine. And here my friends were like recognizing that in me without me even saying anything, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was just a really, really honestly beautiful day. And it it's like one of the top five favorite days of my life, to <laughs> be <know>. honest. And <laughs> we were safe and responsible. And like, we... You know, we were making it up as we went along and using like different pieces of each of our our own spiritual practices with the heavy influence of Norse heathenry, of course, because that's whose house we were at, but it was like, it was this beautiful thing. And then like two weeks later, the rain started and like it it rained and it put the fire out and people got to go back home. And I don't know if what we did had anything to do with it or not, but I like to think that it did. And I like to think that as we allow the unknown and the questions of spirituality, because I think spirituality is, there is no certainty in it, right? It's you're like flying blind sometimes. And you really just have to let go with what you know is honoring self and the earth and others. And however that looks and whatever that looks like, there's no rule book. Like there really isn't. And whether that's through astrology or human design or animal sacrifices or whatever, like, um, but it's, it's really beautiful how, as you just allow yourself to walk into that unknown and open yourself up to it. Like, I think the, the belonging in it for yourself happens naturally, but then it attracts other people to you who are trying to do the same thing. And you like make these magical, like patchwork quilt communities. Yeah pretty
0: cool. I yeah. <laughs> I should send you, there's this really great article. Someone heard me talking about spirituality on a podcast and sent me this article that someone had written about the I Ching and mm. how his sort of experience, uh, he didn't know anything about it, but he sort of heard about it and decided he wanted to write about it. So he did all this research and talked to all these people and, you know, that he spoke about this interesting, and understandable thing that humans do where like they, they want answers and they want certainty and they want solutions and they want to know. And so we like inadvertently approach spirituality in the same way. And that actually the beauty of spirituality is not to find answers. It's actually to embrace the uncertainty and the mystery. And that, that is what, the magic is right. Like the humility of recognizing that you'll never know and you yep. don't have the capacity to know and that all you get to do is explore, but that, that in and of itself is like so amazing. And I don't know, fills me at least with like a ton of gratitude and just endless. Yeah. Curiosity and, and humility and, and yeah. connection. Um, yeah,
2: you get and the it, glimpses, right? Like you get glimpses, like right. you get, you get little moments that you don't have vocabulary to describe, but it's just this like inner sense yeah. of like, okay, th- it's real. Like, right. yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's real, but something is right. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, yeah. And it reminds me of like the issue
0: of scale too, which I talk about that. I just think that so many of the problems that we experience in our world is that like, we're doing it on too large of a scale. You know, like if everyone were to go out tomorrow and like sacrifice a pig and pray for rain, like it would be a problem. (laughs) Um, Like we we can't export these practices in such a sort of like massive way. And our civilization is far too large and our nervous systems cannot handle all this news. I know this is something you talk about too. And something I talk about, like, there's just like, we're not built for this at all. Um, and I think really to like encourage people to find, like you did find your own way, find your own community and that there are no wrong answers. And like, that's totally fine.
2: Yeah. Um, And I mean, that's the thing too. Like, I'm really glad you brought that up is like, we don't have like, everyone doesn't need to go sacrifice a pig. Like not only is that like not sustainable and not okay, but like, (laughs) that's why you do things like that in community. Right. Like there's no need for every family to go sacrifice their own pig whenever like one pig can feed a lot of people yeah. you know and so that's why you do these things as a tribe um if i'm allowed to fucking say that word yeah. without you people saying, in this hey,
0: podcast dare you're it. appropriating it i mean yeah, okay yeah.
2: as no. your clan From i'm allowed to say clan because i have scottish <laughs> highlander ancestry but like um you know like you don't need to do that because when you do it as com- as community Then there is enough for everyone, and you're not like harming the pig population of the world, you know? Um, So, gosh, there's probably gonna be some people who really have a problem.
0: (laughs) Not on my podcast. I have a pretty legit audience because I've been talking like this from the very beginning. So they're probably gone. (laughs) Okay. So I want to talk about, I did a little digging into your Instagram earlier and I wanted to talk about your experience um, having a past life regression.
2: Ah, Okay.
0: (laughs) Yay. um, I also had one, which was totally the like different than what I thought it was going to be in a way that was very humbling because I was like, I'm going to find out that I was like all these magical, amazing people in the past. It was like, not that way at all, Nope. (laughs) Um, which actually made me believe in the process so much more because it was like, oh, okay. Like, I don't really want to talk about that publicly. Like, why would my brain have come up with something like that on its own? Um, But there was something I mean, I'd love for you to talk about it in general, but there was something that you said in your reflection about it around um, creating stories and having your ego kind of seek out these different ways that you wanted to interpret the experience or go look for it again or replicate it or sort of find like the reason why it happened or what it meant or how you could cultivate it. Um, And I feel like when speaking about the sort of combination of spiritual belief and critical thinking like this is really important to talk about because of course we're all um made and created to want to find meaning and belief in story and because that's filtered through our subjective experience um we just have to be conscious of that and recognize it Uh, so i wanted to kind of just give you some space to talk about that experience as a whole but sort of specifically that piece around creating story
2: Okay. Yeah. I would love to. So I actually did, um, two past life regression sessions with a hypnotherapist. Um, the first one, um, I did talk about a little bit on Instagram, but I think I know what highlight you went and watched. So, <laughs> um, so the first one I didn't share, um, as much on Instagram, but what I was really seeking out wasn't the past life part of it so much, but I had read these two books, Um, one is called journey of souls. And then one is called destiny of souls by this hypnotherapist named Dr. Michael Newton. And he took, uh, Brian Weiss's work, which people don't know who Brian Weiss is. He's the guy who wrote many lives, many masters. And he is a psychotherapist who did a lot of, um, past life regression and like talking to people about, uh, past lives and helping them heal the present day, uh, ripples of how those past life things are still affecting them. So Michael Newton took Brian Weiss's work and kind of went a step further with it. And what he discovered was that um, if the person didn't feel like guided by the hypnotherapist or rushed to go from one past life through the death scene and then immediately to the next past life, but sort of that in-between space of like what happens in between lives, Um, so Michael Newton started, uh, using hypnotherapy to regress people to their past lives, have them experience and describe the death scene. And then instead of directing them to go to the next life, it would be like, what's happening next. And their usually their souls would pull away from their bodies and they would sort of have this feeling of release and non attachment to their body. And they could look Mm -hmm. down and see like family members grieving or feel family members grieving. And then eventually they would sort of float away into the proverbial soul world or whatever and once they got there like and and he interviewed hundreds of patients under hypnotherapy and like their responses were all so similar and none of these people had ever met each other and so you you uh, you read case after case after case and you're like okay there's there's something here and so he would interview their souls under hypnosis Um, and what they were seeing in the soul realm and so who was there greeting them whenever they got there and how what did they hear what did they see Um, like did they have interactions with spirit guides yes like did they have interactions with like a a council of elders of some sort like yes Um, a lot of people talked about different soul families that they were parts of and they described it as like clusters of grapes um, kind of in the soul realm Um, they talked about like if there was a person who had had a particularly difficult life or, um, like someone who had done really terrible things in their life, like really hurt people and harmed people, like what, what happened to their souls was their punishment was their hell. Um, and there wasn't like those souls were taken immediately upon entering into the soul world. Those souls were taken to like a place of extreme rest and rehabilitation and like, didn't process the life until their soul was like recuperated to the point that they could then process that life and figure out what they were supposed to learn from it. And then the books talk about like even going a step further and how like souls are able to reflect and learn lessons from past lives by going into the library of souls, which a lot of people call the Akashic records. Um, And then the process by which They the soul then chooses their next lifetime and their next body and their next parents and all of that and like what the reincarnation process looks like. Fascinating, fascinating books. So I read these and I was like, "Well, fuck! I got to find somebody that does this therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Sign me up." So I did. There's one therapist in the whole state of Minnesota who does. It's called Life Between Lives Therapy. And to do life between life therapy, you first have to do a past life regression. So I did the past life regression session. Um, I actually regressed to a life that I already knew that I had had, um, which was um, in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been semi canceled over that, people saying that I'm LARPing as a Holocaust survivor. Um, but (laughs) if I were to tell you, maybe we'll do another podcast where I talk about that, but essentially like I did know before I went into that session that I had had a past life as a Holocaust, all of my nightmares for my entire life have been of me in a concentration camp. Um, like I, uh, I have just this insatiable desire I had, I don't anymore, but as a child, I had this insatiable desire. Every time we had library day at school, I would check out books about the Holocaust. Like, and I always felt like I was looking for something. So Mm. even at like eight, nine, 10 years old. Um, So, and there's a lot more to that story, but then the life between lives part was what I was going to this guy for. So I went back about a month later and I did another session. I regressed. I had another past life. It was a past life as a man. Um, I was sort of in the like, Victorian English gentry, like that was my life. And, um, I died in that life. And then I did feel my soul beginning to pull away from my body. Um, the interesting thing was that my intention, um, because this therapist has you set an intention for each session. So my first intention was show me the life or lives that is most beneficial for me to know about right now. So that was sort of my generic out loud intention for this second session was like, whatever I need to know from the spirit world, like I trust that I'll receive it. So that was what I said out loud, but I also had a silent internal intention, which I think was even more powerful. And that silent intention was, I want to meet myself. And so I, I was under hypnosis, went through the past life, uh, died, began to feel the pulling away from my body. Um, Ended up in this space that, most people would probably think of as outer space because it was like sort of black. Um, But I never made it to the soul world. Like I never made it to spirit guides or to the Akashic records or like my process of choosing my lives or any of that. I never made it there, but the space that I made it to was so like words do not do it justice. Um, And to attempt to describe it, I feel like. Makes it less than what it was. So, the best way that I know how to describe it is it was like an empty fullness and a full emptiness at the same time. It was like everything and nothing all at once. And when I was in this space, like I had no identification with my body, my gender, my husband, my kids, my job, um, where I live. Like I had no identification with form, with function. It was literally just like complete presence. Um, not thinking about past or future. There was no regret. There was no, there was no happiness. It was just like, I just is, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's it. And um, so I stayed, I don't even remember how long I was in that sort of state, but afterwards I was processing it with him. And um, I kept wanting to say like, that was incredible. That was so cool. And then I would catch myself and I'd be like, wait a minute, why am I trying to describe that? Like, I cannot describe it. My ego keeps trying to create something out of it. So then later I found myself and my sneaky little ego um you know being like I want to have that experience again. I want to do that again. Like that was fun. I want to go back to that place.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I want to meet myself again. Um And then being like, being in awareness of that and being like, wow, like I really attached to that experience as a fucking cool experience. And like, now I'm starting to brainstorm ways that I could maybe make it happen again. And just noticing that story and being okay with, with being able to be like, if I never experience that again, that doesn't make my first experience of it not real. Right. Like why would I, why do I need to experience it again? I already know it's real. Like there's nothing anyone could say to me at this point that would be like, well, I can prove to you that what you experienced wasn't real. Um, or, or if we stuck you in a a brain scanner and like MRI would your brain while you were under (laughs) hypnosis, you would see that it's just a brainwave state, you know, like, like I don't give a shit if it was just a brainwave Mm -hmm. state, I don't care. Like Mm -hmm. it was real to me and it was meaningful to me in that, What I learned from it was when I met myself, My myself is not this body. It is not being a woman. It is not being a mother or a wife or a trauma coach or an educator or a food blogger. It's not being a friend. It's not where I live. It's not what I do. It's not who my parents are. Like none of that is me, none of it. My soul, the essence of who I am and of who you are and of who everyone is literally doesn't give a shit about labels and identities because it doesn't have any. Yeah. You know, it just is and it is part of everything and it is nothing all at the same time. And I don't need to have that experience again to have that knowing and that understanding within myself. And it was profoundly meaningful to me, like really profoundly meaningful. Um but I think like I used to do the same fucking thing with with creating stories like you know if i was at church or whatever and like this actually happened where like you know i'm like all of a sudden i'm like praying in tongues you know and like attaching a story to that and being like well now that's how to how i have to pray all the time like i have to always yeah. pray in tongues you know which yeah. ugh, bad taste in my mouth just admit that on a podcast but <laughs> um but yeah i think we we all have these i mean we do the same thing with like like partying, for example, like you get like super drunk and super high and you have a great time at a party and you're like, I want to do that again. You know, like we want to have the experience again. And it's just because we attach a story to it and we create some kind of meaning out of it instead of just letting it be whatever it was and learn from it, whatever we were meant to learn from it. Um, or even not learning anything from it and just letting it be, you know, like, and it's really interesting now though, like to live in awareness and like I would say that I am someone who practices and lives in consciousness. And it's interesting to watch all the little stories that my mind and my ego try to create out of all these different experiences and people and stuff like that. And, and to really just be like, none of it's fucking real. Like it it doesn't matter and Mm -hmm. it's all real and it all matters at the same time. And it's nothing and it's everything and it's full and it's empty. Like it language just doesn't do it justice. And like, I think that's the mistake like I think that's the mistake that we make with spirituality is it's important to have language of course it's important to have language and also there are some things that language language is never going to do justice for and like you know I know with you and astrology the language is like it's the archetypes right it's like this is the language that we use to explain this thing that's very like hazy and unclear and maybe even confusing but does it still explain it in a way that does it justice does it no no. okay so so it's the same thing it's the same thing with like like any anything else right it's like we have language and we try to explain it because that's how we cognitively and intellectually communicate and understand each other but if you can be okay with not having language for something and letting it be whatever it was and not trying to recreate it but just like being grateful that you've had that experience even once um Like how much more powerful is that to be like, I have no fucking clue how to explain this to somebody, but it's real to me. And that's really like, that's it, you know? Yes.
0: And it, I mean, it also like opens you up to, I mean, I think what's really interesting about the way you sort of move through these spaces and the way that I do too and not just these spaces, I think in general, I think we're both very like anti-identifying as shit, you know, yes. <laughs> or at least yes. like holding on to it for an extended period of time. Um, I, it's funny, I had my dad on the podcast and, uh, a couple of times actually, and he's, you know, even as a gay man, like super dismayed about, you know, identitarian movements and these sort of like ideological belief structures around gender and sexuality and, you know he said like i just don't get it like i feel like we should treat identity as like clothing like it's something we try on and wear but it's not something that defines us or that is static or um that we need to like attack other people for not understanding like it's just an interpretive subjective totally inefficient insufficient way um, and yet, you know, obviously something we sort of have to do as humans, like it's very difficult for us to move through the world without identity or without language and without attaching ourselves to things. But we need to be conscious of that. Um, and I think that's something I really appreciate you doing or just, you know, being, but then also showcasing publicly, which was like, Hey, I like thought this a month ago, but now I'm doing this thing. And like, that's totally fine. And like, don't hold me to what I said I was doing a month ago. I can change my mind. And, um, I feel like that's such a, I recognize that that's really difficult for some people to sort of like exist on that sort of shaky ground of not knowing like who they are or what they should be called or what other people should call them. Um, and yeah, similar to your comment about like the, the critical thinking, I don't, I don't, I know some people aren't super capable with that, but for me, I find like great comfort in the shakiness, you know, yeah. um, even when it freaks me out a little bit, I feel like, oh no, this is a good thing. Like it's a good thing that I'm feeling confused or, conflicted mm-hmm. or Um, that I don't quite know where where to land here. I feel like that feels more honest in a way.
2: Yeah, I would agree. And that, that shakiness is something that like scared the shit out of me whenever I was ingrained in fundamentalist Christianity, because there's this Like you have to be certain about all of it. You have to be certain that the Bible is the literal word of God. You have to be certain that Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later. You have to be certain that evangelizing, you know, all of these people, which really looks like whitewashing their culture and like taking culture away from them and turning them into like Westernized people, um, because that's what Jesus looks like. (laughs) That's what American Jesus looks like. (laughs) Um, like there there's no room for uncertainty because if you're uncertainty, like if you're uncertain, um, I mean, I remember like being taught from a very early age that doubt is a tool of the devil, you know, like that, the the, the devil just like gets in with a little bit of doubt and like, that's the road to deception, you know, and that will lead you astray. And so it's, you um, know, it's interesting yeah. how you take religion out of it. And like, people are the same way about identity, you know, yeah. like there can't be any room for doubt if you're not certain but this is how it is and this is how it's going to be. And like, then, then you're privileged or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, I know what it's like to be so certain that you have everything figured out and to think that everyone who doesn't have it, what you have figured out, figured out for themselves, like that you have to save them or like correct them or reprimand them or something like, I know what it's like to be like that. And I did it with religion. Yeah. And then I turned around and did it with with health and wellness, you know? So I know what it's like to be that way. And I can honestly say that like being able to leave that behind that need for certainty, um, the need to fit in, like the need to feel like I'm part of a group that has everything figured out. And we're, we're not part of those groups that don't have everything figured out. Like to be able to let go of that is honestly so fucking freeing and and I, so I've said this, I can't remember if I said it on your podcast, I know I've said it on other podcasts. Like, I think that identity serves a purpose in that it shows us where inequality still exists. And that's good. That's a good thing. But beyond that, I think it keeps us stuck and limited Yeah. because then we latch onto it and it then becomes another story that we tell ourselves and it becomes another religion that we're following. And it becomes another thing that we think black and white about. And it becomes another thing that there's um, no room for exploration or nuance or whatever, because if the exploration and the nuance comes in then all of a sudden it's shaky, you know, and having that shakiness now and that unsure feeling about the world, um, or about spirituality or about any of it, honestly, is I wish people, I hate to use this word. I wish people understood how juicy it is, (laughs) you know, yeah, I wish people understood that like it's actually sometimes a turn on to like not know everything about oh, everything yeah. 100%. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: Having like because a stick up your ass is not sexy like if no. you're that rigid about who you are and what you believe. you are yes. yeah, no, totally. I agree. Yeah, for sure.
2: For sure. And yeah. I don't know, I don't I don't know. I was a very binary, uh certain evangelical Christian in my 20s. And my 30s have really been like the decade where I've taken off all the things that I thought made me me and realized that I am everything and I am nothing. Yeah.
0: I love it. I feel like that's a perfect (laughs) note to end it (laughs) on. Okay. <laughs> hey, we did it. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Lindsay. This is always really yeah, fun to talk absolutely. to you and the time goes by extremely quickly. Um, oh my goodness,
2: this is a blast. If you could tell everyone where they can find you on the interwebs. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, so my website is lindsaylocket.com. I have all kinds of things there. I'm also on Instagram at I am Lindsay Lockett, and I'm the host of the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast. Um and I think that's that's it. Sweet.
0: Yeah. And if you guys want to hear part one of this conversation, go to the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast.
2: Yeah. It's um, episode 79. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks again, Lindsay. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around
0: and listening to that conversation. I highly recommend checking out Lindsay's World if you enjoyed what she had to say. Again, if you'd like to hear part one of this conversation, you can do so by going to the Holistic Trauma Healing Podcast, which is Lindsay's podcast, and listening to episode 79, where she interviewed me about my own spiritual journey. And you can also go back and listen to Lindsay on episode 86 of the podcast. If you would like to leave a comment about your thoughts on this podcast, which I would really, really appreciate and enjoy. I hate asking for things, but I would really love to like hear from you guys about the podcast. And so now that Substack allows you to leave me uh, little notes about it. And I can respond. That's really exciting. So if you go to AnyaCotts.substack.com, uh, you can find uh, a list of a ton of posts, including this podcast episode. And leave a comment. Say hi. Uh, let me know what you thought about this show. Of course, you can go in to comment on any podcast that I've released. I actually I sent out a newsletter recently asking everyone to go and leave me a comment on their favorite podcast episode. But I realized I had the like only paid subscribers can comment option clicked on. Um, so no one could actually do what I what I requested, although I've changed that now so that you can comment on whatever podcast episode you'd like to. So if you have one in mind that you really enjoyed in the past, you can go to Substack and find that one and leave a comment. At the very least, um, please join me uh, for free, even if you don't engage, although I'd love for you to engage, anyakots.substack.com. Uh, what else? Okay, I think that's it. Thank you for being here. As always, I really appreciate you. And I have a lot of really exciting episodes coming up. I know things have been sort of slow in their releasing over the past few months. I've been in it. I've been in it. I've been in the fluid dark night water for a bit. Um, but things are becoming clearer, so that means you get more episodes more regularly. I'm going to play you out with a song called All the Way Down by Jonathan Wilson. It's another song that feels very relevant to this conversation and the process that I've been talking about ad nauseum of um, really bringing it all the way down to the very bottom and hitting rock bottom so that we can move through the thing and create something new. The only way out is through, of course. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting this project. I appreciate you.
3: Take it all the way down Yet it's something I can feel With the drunks and the fleecing dancer With the cats in the cardboard manners Yeah, like it down here No one judges my sad eyes And there's no one small talking At this point, why won't you bother? Watch his nameless traffic And maybe that's the reason I can't let you go I'll never know